Good morning, good day, good evening, uh, whenever you are listening to this. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this week's episode of my podcast, Soundtracking. Thank you as well. I've been slightly inundated with lovely responses from people uh, after last week's episode with the legendary composer Howard Shore, um, which I absolutely loved doing. I would really love the chance to try and get sat down with him as well another time, which would be amazing. Um, also, I don't know if you've been keeping abreast of all the different stuff that's going on around festivals. We just had Venice, Toronto's um, on the go at the minute as well. And it's always a great way of kind of seeing the films that are going to, I don't know, kind of punch through when it comes to awards season. I mentioned that last week with regards to starting to do some great Q&As and things like that. Um, but it's also a really nice way of kind of going, oh, can't wait to see that film. Uh, the Fableman, which is Steven Spielberg's new film that's coming out, which just looks phenomenal, to be honest. I've watched the trailer so many times. And before you ask, yes, I have put in the request for more time with Mr. Spielberg. So I will keep you posted as and when I hear back. But that's around November time. So <gasps> let's all wish for a Christmas miracle, shall we? Anyway, um, I mentioned last week a little bit about who was going to be on this week's show because I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that the film was going to be in cinemas. See how they run. It is a whodunit. It's a kind of murder mystery, but it's a lot more than that. And so much of that is down to the directing, to Daniel Pemberton's score, but also the fantastic cast. And it's just a real joy to go and see. So if you are thinking about going to the cinema, go and see, see how they run. But you're listening to this episode, so maybe this will entice you even more to go and see the film. Um, so I hope you enjoy this episode because I get to speak to the director and composer about the film that they've worked on together, which has been a lovely thread that we've been able to do this year more than ever, which I really have enjoyed a lot. Tom George, Daniel Pemberton discussing Daniel's score for Tom's debut feature, See How They Run. Now, it stars that cast that I mentioned, Saoirse Ronan, Adrian Brody, Ruth Wilson, uh, Reese Shearsmith, Harris Dickinson, David Oyelowo. See How They Run is a comedy whodunit and so much more set in 50s London, uh, which is in, as I said, cinemas now. There's just a great energy from the moment this film starts and particularly. Uh, Sam Rockwell, I haven't mentioned, but the the brilliant comedy duo that is Saoirse Ronan and Sam Rockwell. I really, really hope that they do a number of films together because there's just phenomenal on-screen chemistry and timing between the two of them. Uh, and we're going to begin this episode with one of Daniel's cues from the film, Stalker and Stoppard, the aforementioned duo. Thanks for your time, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. I laughed so much. This film, I had such fun watching it. It's absolutely brilliant. Casting as well is extraordinary. It's nuts, isn't it? Wait. Still sort of pinch myself about the whole cast. 
talk me through um, this script getting to you and, and how Mark's script and how the project kind of started with you, but then also how you go about putting together this cast. Sure. So um, I just finished making the third series of this country. Mm-hmm. And Thank you. <laughs> That's right. <You're> welcome. <laughs> uh, and that I got sent the script, basically, and went in to meet the Searchlight team about it. And to be honest, I just thought, they're not going to hire me to do this. That would be insane. But that was just a good state of mind to be in, I think. And I just sort of had a really, Mark's script was already brilliant. And yet I had some ideas of how we could like, you know, take it forward mm-hmm. um, and how I'd approach it. And it, I guess it just chimed with them and they asked me to put together a treatment, a sort of visual document. It went from there. Yeah. Before you know it, they'd sort of attached me to the film. But of course, in a film, that's only like the sort of first hurdle because until you figure out what your cast might look like, you're not necessarily going to go into production. So, yeah, so that was definitely what came next. Who did you start with? <laughs> we started with Stalker, which is Saoirse Ronan's part. Um, she was number one on a list of one, and she said yes. So awesome. it's really easy casting. Basically, you just, you just pick an actor, <laughs> say you want to do it, and then they go, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. And you're like, oh, great, cool, on to the next. Now, it really was this, like, dreamy sort of process. And then once, you know, um, once Saoirse was on and Sam was on and David Iyalawa was on, then it basically becomes a sort of Ponzi scheme whereby, like, you, you, you can... Uh, now everyone's like, oh, everyone will read the script because you've got these amazing guys involved. So uh, it was just kind of crazy. And, and for me, the most satisfying thing is having these amazing you know, Hollywood actors, but then some of my comedy heroes from over here um, and them all coming together as an ensemble that feels hopefully like it, it kind of, um, it, it, it all works. Is like, that's really special for me. It does because it feels really like they're just having the best time and they're being given, they've obviously got a great script, but tell me if I'm wrong, but it feels like there was a real opportunity to play. You know, being a fan of this country and, and Daisy and Charlie and the way that that kind of, that chemistry and that sort of, you know, feeding off each other sort of thing has always worked with that show as well. Yeah. You can feel the breath of that in this in a way of kind of, I don't know if you encourage people to kind of play with those roles and those characters. It's so lovely to hear that. And also so interesting that you use that word because that, that word play is something that I talk about with cast and that is a big part of the process and was definitely something that, you know, I was looking to take from this country and figure out how could we bring as much of that into what is a much, you know, more high production value period murder mystery film, very different in lots of ways, but having that spirit of like play and looseness and improv, how can that kind of fit into this world? So that's great that you, you, you felt that that came through. And yeah, that, you know, I'm really pleased that there are like three or four or five moments within the film mm. which were like found in that way, whether it be in rehearsals or on the floor, where you've got this brilliant script. And that's, you know, this, again, the similarity with this country is you've got this brilliant script. You know that if you just get what's on the page, you're going to be in great shape. And that's the perfect position to be in when it comes to adding stuff or looking for additional stuff. Because you're not going into a scene thinking, oh, I hope we get some good improv to save this not very funny scene. You're going (laughs) to get this script as is, it'll be great. And now can we work in those little details? And, you know, getting to do that with Sam and Saoirse and 
and you know David and Ruth and and you know obviously people like Tim Key and Charlie Cooper. Yeah, I'm a well versed in that, and Reese Shearsmith as well. So um, yeah, it was great. I always want that sort of in my things because with comedy it's so easy when you go through the takes. You know, take eight, take nine, take ten. Everything can become a little well worn can become a bit safe you sort of now know how it works and you see the actors almost relax and it almost get a bit easy and I think that improv often isn't about generating tons of new material for me it's just about knocking the dust off it and keeping it keeping it feeling exciting and and like kind of like anything can happen I suppose I think as well that's that goes down to not just dialogue and playing with dialogue but playing with reaction and facial expressions and physicality of things as well I mean Shirley Henderson who I absolutely adore and she absolutely steals it every time she's on 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 screen you know when she sat next to him on the couch sort of thing with a cup of tea and just that tiny little moment it's she doesn't really say much but it's the there's so much in that performance it's brilliant it's so funny she's so great it was so amazing having you know such brilliant people all the way through the cast you know people to come in and do little cameos like Shirley does late on in the film it's just so so amazing because you know just you just got this brilliant group of um comic performers but also just great actors you know Mm. like a big part of my approach is like not playing the comedy you know it's like it's and 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 also in this period not playing it like a period piece just trying to like play it as truthfully as possible but then you have people like Shirley people like Sam who bring this amazing physicality to their performances as well and it just adds like depth and nuance (laughs) and texture and it's like yeah Sam and Sarsha are a great double act as well. That's a Love great. Them. Oh, it's so good. And that there's that line where they're in the car, like those kind of one-liners as well, where it's like, oh, it's staged, so to speak. And then by the, the ski reference, then oh, it's downhill from from there. So it's just those. I don't know. They're they're really obvious lines, but they make you cackle in the way they're delivered. Yeah, and I think they're great examples because they're like, on the one hand, you've got these sort of um, constable who's making these slightly cheesy inappropriate jokes for the for the time and the place but actually so much of the comedy comes from sam's reaction to that and that dynamic between them you know and you know they're almost always in a shot together almost always in a two shot together side by side as they go about this investigation it just means you've got you get to watch that relationship develop between them and that and so much of the comedy comes in their reactions to each other all their sort of like missteps um in relation to each other and so um yeah just getting to watch them work every day was a total joy i kind of want a stalker and stoppard kind of series and a sort of <laughs> cagney and lacy style you know in terms of it's like funny a- you, you know what it was like what one of the things i said when i went in for my very first meeting with searchlight is how you should feel at the end of the film like whether there's intention for sequels or not, you should feel like you want them to there to be more, you know, because yeah. it's a really it's a story about a partnership, like coming together. You know, if we if, if the story's worked, then by the end of the film, you should be like, I want to go on more journeys with these two. You know, yes, please. Daniel, I'm sorry. I feel like I've ignored you for way too long. Man. <laughs> sorry. What was the appeal for you about about working on this on this film? I love the kind of style and the idiosyncrasy of the, just the vibe of the film. I went to see uh, Tom and the edit and they showed me a bunch of sequences and straight away it just felt really fresh and different, like a really different like spin on, on the kind of murder mystery. I love the fact it was very British. I was doing too many things that were not very British. <laughs> also, it was really nice to do a film where I could actually go to Soho 
and talk to people. Uh, <laughs> rather than do it all on Zoom because I'm fashionable hours to meet uh, with America. But I really like the film, you know, just straight away, I saw a bunch of shots. I think one of my, I remember just seeing a shot of like, it was almost like a super high up of their car going into um, Scotland Yard. And as soon as I saw that shot, I'm like, okay, this has got really great style, great direction. And it's, you know, it just feels something special. You know, I was like, all right, let's do it. Because you were super busy at the time. I think that's what you should say. You were super busy. Daniel, and I remember. Yeah, <laughs> I remember meeting for a coffee and it, it, it was very much like a, an audition on both sides, I suppose. Because, like, uh, like, Daniel had suit, loads of projects on. And I think, you know, like the ideas, I talked about it, but was like, yeah, I've got so much. So I was like, they just come into the edit and watch a couple of things. And he, like, just responded to them so immediately that obviously that was good for him but it was also good for me because it was like okay this guy really gets it you know and it was like and I think he almost Daniel I think will tell you he he like he often watches the thing and then wants to go and write <laughs> straight away and that was the sort of vibe so it was like that's cool I had something last night which I can't talk about where someone showed me something and they were like we need something for this bit and I literally was like, it's so weird that 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 first moment you see something, you are so inspired sometimes. And I was like, you got piano in this house? And they were like, yeah. And ended up writing this thing. And we were both like, fuck, that's, that's quite good. And it's really weird. The stuff you often write right at the beginning, when you see it for the first time, I think can be really, sometimes that can, it's not always, but sometimes you just get this gut reaction, which is like you do as an audience. And the more you work on a movie, sometimes it's difficult to like, to step back always put yourself back in the mind of someone seeing it for the first time. It's quite hard to explain because, but, but music sets the tone because we hear music before we see anything in this, you know, it's kind of like this sort of sort of shimmy that kind of starts sort of thing before anything happens. But it's, it's omnipresent throughout the film. It's got such a, it's got such a place and a presence and a character in the film. I'm really bad at describing stuff and using the proper kind of, you know. You can, you can just use whatever phrase you want. I well, I mean, they sound like brushes on, you know, drums, yeah, brushes of- on drums, a lot of that kind of thing. But it's it's almost like a sort of breath in a way, you know, and kind of that sort of pace of the film almost in a way. Yeah, there's an energy to it <laughs> that pushes the story through the investigation. And, it, you know, I think the thing with the score was it was – the challenge was like, how do we make something that's got the tone right? That is like, it's got weight, but it's also light. It's got a frivolity, but it's also got seriousness. You're not overplaying the comedy, but you're not overplaying the investigation. Just trying to find a way. In the same way, the performances, you know, they're kind of like slightly dry in the way the humor works. Mm. And it's trying to find music that does that as well. often some of the hardest stuff to do is, is just get that right as, as me and Tom both know you know there's certain sequences like the opening we spent a long time on there's other sequences like boom done but mm-hmm. the opening we went back and forth on that a lot 
because it's like a really key moment where you're like we have to tell so many stories like that opening sequence is like seven minutes or something and it's like we introduce every character and we've got to like help the audience meet them all but understand bits about them but still enjoy the journey and yeah it's always a challenge Tonally, really, tone was was complex in this film, like across the board, not just with the music, but um, because you're trying to hold these two things. On the one hand, you've got a murder mystery thriller, and on the other, you've got a character comedy. And if you go to veer too far in either direction, you either trample the comedy or under undermine the stakes of the, the sort of thriller. Mm. Uh, but then on top of that, there's this added element running through the film which which is the way that it interacts with the period which is it's set in 1953 so you know of course some of our references and things that we talked about and listened to were from that era particularly film music from that era but at the same time it's got a very contemporary tone so you don't just want to do a straight up homage to the period that's a tricky needle to thread and, and finding that balance between those different things was was all the work really the reference points i originally wanted to try and do it a bit more like sort of straight like a kind of almost like a harmony kind of approach bernard herman but we all found that as soon as we did that it, it felt weird because it just felt like it wasn't referencing enough of the style and the modernity of the way the film shot and so it was then like introducing like a lot more unusual instrumentation mm. to it like kind of unusual grooves great drummer called Dave Smith who like uh, I mean there's two drummers both called Smith Dave Smith and Mike Smith both great drummers Dave Dave was this uh, he went off to study he went to live in Africa for a year to play drums out there and just learn like weird African rhythms and he just brought all this kind of very mad like percussion which you'll hear when you hear it there's a lot of like very off kilter kind of percussive beats in there as well but that added a really nice unusual texture to it you know, we had this like, really fascinating banjo player who had all these like banjos from like 1920 and things. Right. And it was trying to pull together as many of these sort of disparate elements into, into the sort of musical um, language of the film. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think in the same way with the film, which is, which I think when things don't comfortably and easily fit in a box, uh, is such a great thing. It's so good when things, you can't go, it's that. And it, with the film in terms of itself, you can't go, it's this, because it does kind of, it embraces lots of different genres, I think, you know, as well. Uh, mm. You mentioned a couple there. And similarly with the music, Daniel, as well, you're going, one, at one minute you're kind of going, yeah, it's jazz. And then it's going, no, nah, it's not, though. Because then it kind of like, you know, there's, there's lots of different influence in there. And it gets bigger. As the film goes on, it becomes more and more orchestrals. The, the, the stakes get bigger and the story gets bigger. And like the music, you know, I always find a score sort of done it right, sort of does that. And it's definitely like a journey through this score on this one. And I think what's so brilliant about the work that Daniel's done is that because he started with those sort of Bernard Herrmann, Miklos Rocha sort of stuff, those were the some of the reference point. That was some of the temp that was on there when we first talked about the film. It's then how do you take that and and as Daniel says through either instrumentation or you know unusual instrumentation or slightly odd arrangements of that material. How do you put this little kink in it? And what you're left with is this score. I think that feels on the one hand really familiar. Like it feels like those films of that period. But at the same time, there's something niggling at you going, it's not quite like that. There's something a bit off with it. And that is like the whole tone of the film, I hope. And, is like, and, and, and it's that, that that he's done such great work on. I was gonna say, I think we found that if we made, if I made stuff that felt too period, it just didn't help the film. It, it ended up making it feel like an incredibly well shot, like period. You know, you put that sort of stuff on a scene, and we wanted it to feel very badly shot. That was the key, and very. Bad. <laughs> it's like I'm always like, if you're making cinema, there's so much stuff out there. You've got to make something that feels new and hasn't been done before. Mm-hmm. And so, I, you know, when I was early on, you'd feel like, well, this this feels great, but it doesn't feel necessarily new musically that's what was interesting about and you know it's like at some stage it's like how far can we push the kind of craziness can we go electronic and stuff and then you find no it doesn't really mm-hmm. it feels an act you know i've got no problem with anachronistic music but you've got to get the tone right and with this i think the palette the, the, the production design like the whole way the film looks has got a really like beautiful beautiful period element to it i want the music to have that as well 
Yeah. Yeah, because the music's doing world building in that sense as well. It's the context, you know, it's saying, here we are, set up, you know, and and that's so important in this film because it it's then unpicking some of these, you know, tropes and um, uh, facets of uh, murder mysteries, but also film thrillers. And, um, and so on the one hand, the music really wants to do that job of not undermining that world. It wants to set it up. In fact, it can be the lead, as you said, Edith, in terms of totally setting up, you know, this is the kind of film you're in for. But then it needs to find a way to twist that and also to accommodate the comedy along the way. Yeah. Um, at, without necessary, and so then it was like, well, how much do we play the comedy? If this has got a really fun thing underneath Stop Art and Stalker, well, maybe that's gone too far, and now it feels like we're trying to force the laughs on people. So it, it was, you know, sort of great starting point, and then it was a lot of sort of tuning at the edges, I think, wasn't it, to get it to sit right. I was tapping my foot the whole way through the film you know like you would if you were in a club and there's like just the great like great That's musicianship good. that kind of makes you not want to sort of not sort of tap your foot so I think I felt like I did that throughout the entire film okay. I'll do a lot of work if I do a cue that's a tapper right that's like like for me that's a big thing because it, it just means you're really in, it means you're into the world and you're enjoying it right yes and it's very hot it's the hardest thing about doing a tapper is basically you are then locked to a groove and rhythm. As soon as you kind of like go off kilter with that, you don't tap and you kind of lose it. And then it takes you out of that experience. But it means if you're scoring something picture, it's really fucking hard sometimes to hit all these things in the way you want to do. And that is like the difficulty is trying to make these cues feel very simple, but actually there's something very complex going on. And if you're tapping the foot, then it means I've succeeded, so I'm happy. One key in particular, just what you were talking about, um, about the atom, that there's where um, Sarge is in the car on her own and he's gone to the dentist and the pens and she snaps the pencil and there's this kind of, kind of the drums kind of pick up the pace and um, she leaves this lovely, I mean, I'm probably getting my instrumentation or double bass comes in and it's just, it's a really great kind of cue that there's no dialogue for a, for a little bit and then it's, I don't know, it's just that in that space where there's no dialogue to drive the story, this this cue particularly just 
kind of takes us on the, you know, from A to B where we are. It's so great. You know what happens in that queue? I've actually got the wrong water bottle with me, but I'd be sitting here and we were like talking about it and we were like, we need to make it a bit more unusual, right? It can't just be a walking jazz line. And I had a glass, this is not a glass bottle, but I had a glass bottle and I was like, it's like I've never done it, it sounds quite good. I was just doing that. I was like, that sounds great. So I, I like it was this stick and a glass. A glass. <laughs> I just had mixed me. I was like, right, let's just play that on it. And it sounded great. So that's like a big part of that. It's just this glass water bottle was sitting next to me. Is that an Academy water bottle that you just lifted yeah. up, by the way? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if you. It's um, got to be an Academy water bottle. That's the key. It's like, it can, it's a, it, a water bottle's fine. It's just a water bottle, but it's got to be from the Academy. Otherwise, it doesn't yeah. work. So, uh, <laughs> Of water and <laughs> Oh, amazing. diegetic music in there as well you know in terms of there's a couple of scenes where you have the kind of you know the, they bleed into the action and, and out again sort of thing well that was one yeah. of the big challenges in that opening sequence that daniel mentioned earlier is not only does it need to work but he then had to find a way there's an on-camera band yeah and like me up me really annoyingly in the early days was like wouldn't it be great if then they're sort of playing that and he goes well that's impossible because you've recorded them playing something totally like different and uh obviously you're not shot it with this in mind or whatever and i was like okay okay cool i'll let that go i'll let that go but then sort of without <laughs> without telling me weeks later he'd sort of found a way to do it in a way that like for me is so satisfying because it's like this orchestral score that's then shifting into a slightly more rhythmic thing and then the jazz band who were on camera appear to be playing that as the diegetic sound in the room so yeah quite that sure was a nightmare. It, was <laughs> it kept changing the edit by like about eight frames so it's yeah. like i've just got taken out eight frames of this of this sequence it's like is that going to be a problem it's like yeah well every beat is going to be off so effect. you know imagine you've made a long let's say you made a very long clapper everything's hitting you're taking a bit you're like oh my god it's like the whole thing is not gonna and but it's like when you have stuff on camera it's always it's always like a nightmare especially if you're trying to do a track that's like got something playing underneath it but it was it was cool we made it all work did some great work with gary the editor as well like another big part of this is is just all of us working together fire stuff to gary he'd fire it back to me Daniel and Gary and Daniel's assistant Alex and and Robin our, mu- our excellent music editor like it, it's a lot of like wheels are spinning to see what we can actually we can help you out there we'll if we just open that eight frames we can you know and I'm I'm always into that kind of way of working right through the process and there was even a moment where you felt really strongly about Daniel which was a big sort of reveal moment actually in fact it's where we reveal where we see the killer on camera for the first time we essentially reveal who done it. And Daniel said, you, you've, you've ruined that, you know, because, because 
because he had this very clear idea musically of where he was heading and how he wanted to pay it off. And, um, and so actually we changed the edit back to, to like land it in that way. And he was totally right. So it's like, it is, you know, a little bit of back and forth. It's not, you know, I don't. Collaboration. Collaboration. And I just, I just don't think I'd ever present a picture and go, now score to this, please. Yeah. Cause you just, I don't know how you can do that because how do you even feel the length of the space until there's something in it? Do you know what I mean? Some things need to be tighter. Some things need to be a little looser. So it makes it a bit of a head scratcher for sure. And um, and I know there are times where Daniel was like, oh yeah, just another 16 frames, is it? Okay, yeah, I'll just pop off and do that, shall I? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but enjoyable for me. <laughs> the weird thing with that seems like, if you've got, like the hardest thing with these composers, you get like a double end. Where it's like, here's a big thing, and here's another big thing. And it's like, they're really, I've had it on a bunch of movies, and they're really unsatisfying. And it's like, just make it one big thing, and put the other big thing a bit later or before, but make it like this thing has to land. Also, I was a very annoying director for Daniel to work with, this because cause my background is like filming live music like so not music we worked together at Glastonbury by the way we definitely yeah yeah so I filmed a lot of live music and have worked with you know script supervisors calling beats and bars whatever so I have that little bit of knowledge which is always like the worst amount of knowledge for anyone and certainly when you're then a specialist so as Daniel said earlier it's like I'd come with like a sort of you know some lingo and he'd just go, look, just, can you just tell me what you would like it to be like in like layman's terms? And then things got much, much easier, basically. <laughs> but yeah, so it's like, it's that little bit of knowledge is like the sort of most dangerous thing, I think. <laughs> I love that. as well love is the the two is it just two cues needle drops in it the richard holly track and hank Williams? yes yeah yes just the two yeah they, they work brilliantly i mean oh great it's kind of you know it's 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 interesting because i wasn't expecting it i wasn't expecting either of them and holly pops up and i'm like oh lovely great yeah that was much debated definitely by like the wider team you know but for me it totally fitted that moment so well that it just opened up the whole sequence as far as I was concerned. And suddenly it had so much more depth to it and felt it really like landed it in a way that we hadn't been before. But also in a way, Rich's music kind of sums up that tension that we're sort of talking about, right? In terms of tone and periods, right? It's like music so rooted in the in the 50s, but with instrumentation and, and that... that Give, tells you this was made you know recently mm. do you know what I mean and so it, it, it felt like a, a natural fit 
And is that just because you're a bit massive Richard Hawley fan? I love that song. Yeah. I mean, I was, but I had no idea. I, it didn't occur to me that it would be a contemporary track. We tied tons of, um, of, of period tracks beforehand. So, um, no, yeah. I didn't set out with that intention. But, um, but yeah, I'm a big Richard Hawley fan. So yeah. it, was, it was great. What are you like? You've had a right life. Taken a long ride But oh what a cost and all of your life Staring at white lines Reading the roadside mentioned earlier about how the how kind of the music almost kind of gets bigger and bigger towards the end and I love that kind of end and crescendo which is not the right phrase to use in any way shape or form it totally it undersells it but it's awesome well it's fun because you get to be like the thing I also really enjoyed about this movie is it could take a lot like and you could especially that ending because scoring you know the kind of more period scoring around 50, like sort of the 50s and 60s it was very big and emotional and you know modern scoring is a lot more restrained slightly scared of emotion quite you know more more sound based you know everyone's like why don't you have themes in films all this kind of stuff these days you're like well often the film it doesn't really work for the style of film it'll feel actually like weird wrong but with this it totally felt right so it's just really fun so it's like let's just go as big as we can boom tam tam on every hit someone someone told me once that their music teacher from years ago said uh, a piece should never have more than one tam-tam hit in it. But I'm like, nah, this has got <laughs> six tam-tam hits at the end. Bang, big chord. Bang, big chord. Bang, big chord. <laughs> love it. I love that. It's so great. I'm excited to see what's next for you, Tom, because this is kind of, you know, in terms yeah, me of- too. Yeah. <laughs> but this was, you know, it's it's such it's such an accomplished piece. It's so it's just so brilliant put together. Also, I'd really like Adrian Brody to narrate my life or everything in life for me from this point <laughs> forward. He's like got the his voice is so great and he's, he's got one of those oh. I mean, it's about an octave below your average human man yeah he's also he, got that thing of that era though in a way you know in that yeah he like, has and he really of... just inhabited that character like so perfectly and just watching him become 
Leo, who's this sort of slightly malevolent but oddly charming presence, you know, throughout the film. Because Leo is basically, he's a sleep ball and yeah. he's sick. Like him. He's got like a kind of uh, like a vulnerability and a warmth and an openness, which like, like his performance, I think, is really... Powerful. I think that's so true, yeah. In With another casting, you know, there's some parts where you go, look, they've done it great, but the, the character was so clear and so clearly drawn that someone else would have done another, a great job there as well. But I totally agree. Like, Adrian has, like, um, has sort of added warmth and, like, charm. And um, it, 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 very similar to Paul Shahidi in this country, actually, which I always think about. It's like we totally rewrote that part once he came well it just totally opened it up because he went from being this very straight ahead uh disciplinarian for the you know into this like warm caring guy who had to set boundaries and like it's just that joy of when you get an actor who fits apart and then takes it somewhere that you didn't quite expect and that was totally it with adrian it's now my country by the way because i live out in stroud now so um... stroud that really is that really is this country. yeah Oh yeah, I was proud the other day because the uh, the next series of Slow Horses. I was about to mention that in about two minutes' time. Yeah, didn't you do the score for that? It's bloody awesome <laughs> with Mick Jagger. But yeah, yeah, but like, I, but I'm not doing that to like reference. But basically, I went there for my sister's wedding and. It was really weird because I'd just literally been scoring all these themes set around Stroud Station. Mm. And there's a company called A&A Taxis, which doesn't really exist anymore at the station. But I was like, I've got to get A&A Taxis to pick me up and then get a guy from A&A Taxis. I was like sort of cosplaying on like, a show I'd worked on. It was quite weird. Oh, man. There's a, if you ever need a taxi driver, there's a really great guy called Simon Stroud. That's his actual name. He's a really <laughs> good cabbie. So, yeah, I'll pass it on next time. You just found him out on this to get, like, 10% discount. Defo, definitely. Um, Tom, do you know what you want? Before I do talk briefly to Daniel about the horses and a couple of other things, do you know what you want to do next? Like, what's coming off the back of this? You're like, ooh. Yeah. Um, Mark and I are working on something new, which right. is about... Small Town Corruption, which I'm quite excited about. That's a feature. But really to keep working on things that have great stories, great character, that's always the start point for me, you know. Um, I think it'll always have funny bones or oddities in it as well. I can't imagine doing a sort of straight-ahead, um, you know, period drama or straight-ahead thriller. It needs something in it. But, yeah, across TV and film, you know, it's amazing to make my first feature and for it to be this on such a scale and with such an amazing team around me. But it's always like, what's what's the best fit for the story, I think. And so, um, yeah, always like looking to both like develop and and write and co-write and collaborate, really, because that's that's what I love about it. Daniel, Slow Horses was just amazing. And I'm so excited about the second series as well. I know Jack pretty well, Jack Loudon. He's banging on to me about it, like whilst we were filming. He goes, wait, do you see it? Wait, do you see it? I'm working with, he's like, yeah. like a kid in a play shop working with Gary Oldman. It was amazing to hear his enthusiasm for that. And, um, but yeah, I'm excited for the second season. Yeah, You've done good. it all. Uh, yeah, I've been doing it with Toy Drum, with his mm-hmm. band, and I've been working with them on it. So we've been splitting it up a bit uh, because I can't do every single thing in the entire world. <laughs> it turns out. He's tried, but <laughs> it didn't work out. No, no, we like work. They got like a cool team down in Brian, so we worked together on, on that for a fair bit. And then um, it's a really fun series. I'm literally just, we're literally just finishing the, the last episode now. It's been fun to, I don't want to say anything about the ending, okay. but like I love it when you can bring back the Jagger theme 
at a really key moment and like do a slight different arrangement and uh, actually shit i've got email him uh, to get a sign up on it. <laughs> uh, uh, but um uh yeah you just sort of rearrange it and and it's, you know it's like any film we've got something and you've got that satisfying theme that you can just drop in very sparely but when you do it really counts it's mm. and, and the new series is great i'm, I'm, a, I'm like a, a fan of the show as well as you know when you work on something it's very weird when you work on series because unlike a film you're like okay right you sort of know the whole thing so it's a one entity so you you can sort of be a fan of the film but with a series you're like i can't wait to see what happens in the next episode like i've actually stopped reading the scripts because i kind of want to watch the episodes and be like all right yeah what's happening which is great <laughs> also a bit stupid because there are like the <laughs> plot point where you were like, oh, shit, you thought about that. I wish I could bet you that. <laughs> I'm actually working on this. I should maybe pay a bit more attention. Um, Amsterdam, big fan of David O. Russell, and it's be- it feels like a lifetime since he released the film. They are just literally mixing it. They will have turned up at work right now in America, and they'll be mixing it. Um, we get a call yeah, any second. I mean, no, let's not think about that. <laughs> probably will be. Yeah, it's a really great film. Again, it's a film you can't describe what it is. People yeah. go, what's it about? And I'm like, how long you got? I can explain yeah. it to you. But what I love is when you get films where it's just like, it's, it's something very unique, like this film, where it's just something different. And uh, Amsterdam is one of those as well. So yeah. I'm, ex- I'm excited for you to see it. But that's something that we kind of, as a fa- you know, as, as fans of your your kind of craft, is what, you, what you've been lucky enough to do quite a lot of, even like with a Spider-Man film as well. Spider-Verse, you know, that was kind of such a different take on that world, both kind of sonically, but also visually as well. Absolutely yeah. blew our minds sort of thing. And that was what my my small person was making sure I asked you about before I started the interview, going, ask him about the next Spider-Man, please. And I was like, I will, but I'll probably have to shoot me afterwards. The next Spider-Man is, uh, is progressing. I'm trying to take a break for a bit because then yeah. I want to be like, get into spider-verse 2 because like spider-verse 2 is so important for me because i'm like i know i have this theory right everyone needs to get excited by sequels okay yeah and then phantom menace came out and it was like i sort of feel it was a time when people started to lose faith in the world slightly phantom menace came out and everyone felt a bit let down and after that point i don't feel many sequels have you know if you look at like something like terminator 2 or aliens you know um, yeah, obviously there's both James Cameron, but you get these these, these films. You like the, the sequel's so exciting. Yeah, they delivered, and I really want the second Spider Verse and the third one turns out to uh, to deliver for people and and feel like total event. Like like when you go to the cinema and you just like have no idea what you're going to get, but you know it's going to be exciting. I hope I don't screw it up. Well, go and have a nice holiday <laughs> and get yourself prepped for it. Um, and yeah. thanks, congratulations on this, both of you. It re- I had such fun watching this film. I just thought, on, you know, on so many levels, the performances, the craft of everybody involved. Yeah, it just felt really fresh and really different to anything I've watched in a, in a while. So, yeah, huge congratulations and massive thanks for your time today. All right, thank you, Edith. Amazing. Love to see you again. You too, guys. Thanks so much. See ya. Take care.
From the score to see how they run, that storyboard shootout rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Tom George and Daniel Pemberton. My huge thanks to Tom and Daniel for taking the time to talk to us. As I've mentioned many times already, See How They Run is on general release now and definitely worth checking out. If you want to hear my previous conversations with Daniel, please head to edithbowman.com where you can find every single episode of the podcast. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtrack in UK. And please do send me an email to info at edithbowman.com, which is exactly what Milo Jones, who's 14, did. And it's a very beautiful and long and lovely email, which if you don't mind, I'm going to share with you now. It says, hello, Ms. Bowman. Thank you very much, Milo. I've been following your show for quite a while now, being a young composer myself. And these episodes always bring me a lot of insights into composer styles and ideas, as well as what directors are looking for in their works. And of course, a lot of joy as well with your brilliant personality and conversational skills with your guests. Thank you. I recently heard you talk about recommendations and suggestions on your show and decided to come up and give you one. Of course, I realise you probably won't see this or even if you do have time to consider it, but I thought I might as well. Milo, I hope you're enjoying this. My favourite composer of the last decade or two and the one I believe, oh, I mean it's before you were born, uh, is the most innovative at the moment is Cristobal Tapia de Villa. Now, whether you've heard of him or not and whether you'd be able to get him on your show, it'd be a great idea to give a listen to some of his compositions or even watch some of the series he's soundtracked. Utopia being my favourite as well as the most popular. I won't make this email too long, but I really feel as if any project he touches is always instantly better. His unique approach to the music making process, feeling and theory behind it justifies his success. Either way, I think it'd be really interesting to see an episode with him as the 10 year anniversary of the first Utopia episode airing is approaching the 15th of January 2023 my birthday. He's also been working on the HBO original White Lotus recently, quite a different project to the rest of the ones he's worked on. I mean, I loved White Lotus, so I am definitely, Milo, I'm going to make the call, send the email and at least ask. And he says, thanks again for everything you do. I hope you at least read this at some point. Milo, I really hope uh, that you heard this and you're grateful for me. Well, not grateful, but I did read it. See, and I talked about it and I'm going to send an email off the back of it as well. If you have any suggestions or recommendations that you want to send to me, please do drop them to me at info at edithbowman.com. We love hearing your suggestions, your thoughts, even if it's not just on suggestions for the show, but it could well be for um, people that, you know, films that you've seen, TV shows. Anyway, very excited because next week on the show, we have the hugely talented David Buckley, who amongst many things has worked on Sandman. So I really hope that you can join me to hear my lovely conversation. I loved chatting to David about working with the creative team behind Sandman, be that Neil Gaiman or the showrunners or the directors. So, David Buckley, next week's episode, talking about Sandman, which is up on Netflix now. And if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend that you do because it is a phenomenal adventure into the wonderful world and mind of Neil Gaiman. And something that has been, well, it's been kind of tipped to have been made for the last 30 years. And, and you'll find out why Neil held off till now for the show to be made. Um, so, David Buckley, composer, our guest on next week's show. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs> <laughs>